Let's pray as we listen to God's word. Lord, we thank you so much for your living word, and we pray that your, the word that is living and active will speak to us and shape us, shape us to be Easter people, people who are empowered by your risen life. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of my fondest memories of my time at, uh, in London was when, when I heard one of my friends say these words while explaining something from the Old Testament. She stood up in front of about a hundred people and said, How can a holy God be with single people? And this moment of awkward silence dawned upon this room until I just couldn't hold it any longer. And so I started laughing and the whole room um, started erupting into laughter as well. Of course, she meant to say, how can a holy God be, be with sinful people? So, I mean, she was in a, I don't know, she was in her mid-30s and things, maybe things were on her mind. Um, but according to the Bible, that question, how can a holy God be with sinful people, is a fundamental question. A fundamental problem of humanity. I remember a retreat uh, when I was just praying sincerely to God. God, show yourself to me. But then all of a sudden, I uh, was overwhelmed with fear. Because I thought all, if God actually appeared to me at that moment, that I might be consumed away by His holiness. Our holy God cannot be with sinful people. And actually, there are a lot of ways that God told uh, us that this is the case. And one way was the architecture of the temple. The temple was divided into three parts, the courtyard and the holy place. And inside of it was the holy of holies, the most holy place. And the Gentiles couldn't even enter the courtyard. They couldn't enter into uh, the the, the temple at all. They were warned that if they did, um, they they, they were doing it uh, uh, at the risk of their lives. And according to Josephus, the famous Jewish Jewish historian of the first century, The courtyard and the holy place were likened to the sea and the land, accessible to the Jews, to people. The third part, the holy of holies, represented the heavens, and it was accessible to only God alone. The holy of holies and the holy place were then separated by a long and thick curtain made with instructions given in Exodus chapter 26, And Josephus describes the veil as 80 feet high, embroidered with blue and fine linen, scarlet and purple, wrought with marvelous skill. On its its surface were stitched the panorama of the sky. And the reason for the curtain was explicitly there. It It was there to separate God from people. God was with the Israelites in the temple, but he was still separated from them. In fact, the Holy of Holies was entered only once a year at the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, by the priest, by the high priest to sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial animal. But the fear was so great that the priest might die if he saw God's face. And so they took a few precautions. Um, they wore, uh, as he entered the, uh, the, the temple, he wore bells around his ankle um, to verify to the other priests waiting outside that he was still moving around, that he was still alive. And they wore a rope around their waist that if they fell dead, uh, dead 
then other priests didn't have to go into the Holy of Holies, but they could just pull him out. And perhaps most biblically, they went into the temple, the Holy of Holies, with incense smoking um, and covering the room uh, as a means of protection so that they might not accidentally get a glimpse of God and die. So the curtain separated us from God because sinful people cannot, could not be with God. And actually, as Jesus dies on the cross, this is exactly what happens to him. So look at verse 33, that that famous cry, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became sin for us and was separated from God his Father. Yes, there was that excruciating pain of the cross. And the word excruciating really literally means out of the cross, ex crooks, out of the cross. That excruciating pain was there, but could you imagine the psychological and spiritual uh, pain of bearing everyone's sin? I was thinking about this, and if you think about the sin that you have committed in your life, don't you feel slightly far away from God? Don't you feel separated from God? Think of your lifetime sin, bearing your lifetime sin at that one moment. But not just yours, but everyone in the world. Everyone who has ever lived and who will ever live. He bore weight of that sin. And he felt the separation of God. He cried, my God, my God, why have you, sep- uh, why have you forsaken me? But as he breathed his last, Mark records another extraordinary verse in 38. The curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. It's not from bottom up as it would if people did it. It's top to bottom to indicate that God is tearing this curtain, the 80 feet curtain that hung, separating God from humanity, is torn in half. God's glory that was confined to a national shrine of stones not, was now flooding in to the nation, to the, to, to, to the world. The word torn is used twice, only twice in the Gospel of Mark. And the first was in the time of Jesus' baptism. Um, when, when the heavens open up and Spirit is descending upon Jesus at his baptism. And now we can imagine, at this point of the cross, when Jesus is dying, that veil that was engraved with the panorama of the sky, now ripping in half to break forth the glories of God into the world. God's presence is no longer limited to the chamber. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord Knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, prophet Habakkuk prophesied, and it marked the end of the old order of the Mosaic law as well, which put the temple sacrifice um, at its heart. And God tore that in half as well, made the temple and the sacrificial system unnecessary. And this was all because God can now be with sinful people. Barrier between God and humanity was torn away, for the penalty of sin has been paid by Jesus' death on our behalf, and by giving us the reward of his life 
His righteousness. And as Paul so eloquently put in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And because God now saw us as righteousness of Christ, because we were imputed with, given the righteousness of Christ, we could now have direct access to this holy God. No barrier was necessary. As I was thinking about this, how amazing this is. Um, for the entire time of the Old Testament, the, pre, the priest interceded on behalf of people. But even now, Catholics and even some Anglicans insist on the need for intermediary presence, like priests and bishops, between God and lay people. It's as if the, tor- the, he- the curtain is still not torn, the heaven's not torn. They confess their sins to their priests only, receive grace through sacraments only, receive the teachings of the priest only. The curtain, but we know that the curtain is now torn in two. We do not need a priest anymore to go to the presence of God. In fact, the New Testament calls all of us, all who trust in the name of Christ, a nation of priests. For we can approach the throne of grace with confidence We also do not need to be afraid of our salvation. We can be assured, for the curtain is torn in half, from top to bottom. Holy God is with those who cling to Christ, for no longer deemed sinful. We have the righteousness. We have become the righteousness of God. At the moment of the curtain... Tearing in half, Mark records another peculiar event. In verse 39, the next verse, the centurion who stood in the front of Jesus exclaims, Surely this was the Son of God. Actually, could we bring that verse up in here? Surely this man was the Son of God. In verse 39, the fact that the centurion, who is most, li- most likely is a Roman, uh, Roman soldier, says anything of the kind is surprising, but it is um, most surprising in the context of the Gospel of Mark. Um, throughout Mark, Jesus has been telling people not to talk about his identity. For example, in chapter 1, when the evil spirit recognizes him as the Holy One of God, Jesus tells him to be quiet. When he heals a leper, Jesus tells him not to tell anyone about it. Sometimes he is very stern. He tells people... Um, uh, 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 he warns people not to tell um, anyone about who he is, his identity. Jesus reveals himself as a person who can heal the sick, walk on water, command the dead back to life, forgive sins, calm the storm. But each time, people ask, who is this? And if there is a person who recognizes Jesus, Jesus then tells that person to remain, remain quiet. It's as if Jesus doesn't want to be known for these things. And I think this is right. At the cross, that is how Jesus wants to be known. At the cross, there is no no more secret. In fact, the veil of secrecy is torn in half, and God reveals himself fully to humanity. And we find God, as he's revealed fully, God hung on the cross. 
At the foot of the cross, the centurion exclaims, Surely, this is the, uh, this is the Son of God. There's no more warning for him to be quiet, and his words are given space to ring out. The point is that God isn't fully revealed when he casts out his demons, demons, though he does this simply with a command. God isn't fully revealed when he's healing the sick, even when he's raising the dead. If you want to see God, if there's anyone among you who is looking for God, who want to see who God is, what God is like, it's not in the healing. It's not in, in casting out demons. It's not walking on water. It's not uh, in, in calming the storm. If you want to see God fully, God is fully revealed on the cross as he dies. As he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he cries, it is finished. We can see God most clearly and most fully when we look at Jesus upon the cross. Because that is the God that we have. That is the king that we have. King who wears crown of thorns, whose power is displayed not in claiming it but in surrendering it. By dying for the people whom he loved. This is how he drew all people to himself. But um, the only disciples who had seen, uh, who witnessed the fullness of God on the cross were a few women uh, mentioned in verse 40. So take a look at that. Verse 40, 40, uh, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome. These women, when all the uh, people, all the uh, male disciples had had abandoned uh, Jesus, um, they stick close to him, even at the foot of the cross. And and on an early Easter Sunday, the same women, according to 16.1, appear to the tomb with spices so they can give him a proper burial. Of course, when they got there, they saw the rock in the front of the tomb rolled away. And when they entered, they saw the angel dressed in white. The angel told them, you're looking for Jesus, but he is risen. He is not here. He then gives one command to go and tell Peter and the disciples that they should meet him in Galilee, for Jesus had gone in front of them. But then this story, and indeed the entire the Gospel of Mark, ends in verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And if you have your Bibles open, you can see that actually there are other verses in the Gospel of Mark, uh, verses 9 through 20. But as you can see in that footnote there, uh, it should be there in almost every Bible, that the most reliable early manuscripts don't have verses 9 through 20. But a lot of the Bible scholars believe that this ending in verse 8 is just unacceptable because it ends so abruptly. And it ends with uh, women fear, uh, fearing and trembling. And some propose that maybe some of the pages at the uh, Gospel of Mark uh, has gotten ripped out and, and lost. And some believe that... Um, 
that maybe Mark was martyred before he could finish the gospel. And it is true that so many people felt so uncomfortable with this ending that 9 through 20 have been added on at some point and has made it to our Bible. And in my opinion, the story was never meant to end. If you turn back all the way to verse 1 and chapter 1 of Gospel of Mark, this is how the Gospel of Mark begins. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, I think the whole story of the Gospel of Mark is actually just the beginning. It's the beginning of the Gospel. It doesn't have an ending. The resurrection is not the end of the story, but it's only the beginning. The resurrection sets in motion a new story that is not yet fully finished, not yet resolved. In fact, it will not be completed until all those who trust in Jesus are gathered from all around the earth. When the thousands upon thousands surround the Lamb to sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That is how the gospel story ends. And we are the next chapter in the gospel story. These women's lives were profoundly changed. And you can tell because they trembled and they were bewildered. They fled the tomb and they were afraid because they had realized that the man that they were going to anoint and give a proper burial to had risen again from dead. Its disciples were changed after the resurrection as well. Thomas calls Jesus, my Lord and my God, finally. And all of them went out to tell the good news of Jesus Christ until the end of the earth. If you knew a man who amazed people with his teaching, who taught a new way of life, if you knew a man who healed the sick, drove out demons, fed 5,000, raised the dead, calmed the sea with a command, and at the touch of his garment, people were healed, a lifetime chronic illness was healed. If you knew a man that predicted his death, but also his resurrection, if you knew that he said that he was the Son of God, that life can only be found in him, that the resurrection can only be found in him. If you knew that he said that he was the Son of God, but when you, um, you, if you knew that he was killed, but when you went to the tomb, you found the tomb empty, And a young mysterious messenger said, don't look for him here because he is risen. And if you knew that this Jesus is the Lord who came back from death to life and one day will return to judge the living and the dead, and if you suddenly realized that everything that this man said in his lifetime was true, wouldn't your life change? Wouldn't your life be turned upside down? And wouldn't you tell others about this man? The Gospel of of Mark doesn't end here. 
we are left at the empty tomb. But too, ma- too many of us will go home after the service, perhaps have a nice Easter meal in the evening, but we'll go back to our lives on Monday and Tuesday to the routines of our lives, unaffected by this good news. We will neither be filled with awe or compelled to tell anyone about what we know. Mark's ending is a never-ending story as the baton passes on to us to join in in this race and spread the good news. But once again, the question is, will we participate in the story of Jesus being known all over the world and sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. I know this is a story that you've heard again and again every Easter. But I, there, this has to change the way that we live because Jesus is alive. He is risen. Everything that we know about life has to change as a result. And I pray that at this Easter, all of us will know Jesus' death and his resurrection, that our lives will be turned upside down. Amen. Well, in response, we're going to um, have a time of offering. We only offer anything back to God because God has given everything to us. And this is a song about that. In Christ alone, how in Christ alone, everything that is worthwhile in this world is found in him. So why don't we stand and sing in Christ alone as we offer our gifts back to God.